Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Hi, I'm Colin Ellis. Welcome to our show on Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. Today, we're looking at culture, controversy, and when only one side of the story gets told. Filmmaker Megumi Sasaki set out to challenge the highly charged debate around whaling. If you're a documentary fan, you might remember The Cove, the Academy Award-winning documentary that was a major sensation around the world almost 10 years ago. It introduced the world to Taiji, a tiny fishing town in coastal Japan. There it is. A little town with a really big secret. It's so bizarre. What's going on over here? The Japanese people don't even know about it. They take the boats around to the secret cove that nobody could see. They're afraid of cameras. They said if the world finds out what goes on here, we'll be shut down. They were hiding something. Back then, the Cove's look at the whale and dolphin hunt in Japan sparked an international outcry. Everyone from celebrities like Russell Simmons to the U.S. ambassador to Japan denounced the practice. Activists from around the world started to fly into Taiji to protest. Meanwhile, in a theater somewhere in New York City, documentary filmmaker Megumi Sasaki watched it for the first time. It was, um, it was shocking in many ways. And first of all, it was a very powerful storytelling, very well done film but you know after i sort of calmed down i was like wait a minute but this film is just it's so one-sided so i just felt very uncomfortable with that megumi was born and raised in japan but has lived in the united states since the late 1980s she's seen how polarized issues often have two sides to a story even around controversial issues like gun control and abortion but the conversation around whaling felt different to her but when it comes to whaling, we only hear one side, and I always wonder why, you know, why we only hear the negative voice, you know, towards these issues. Megumi returned to Japan to document the effect the cove had on Taiji. She spoke to younger generation Japanese people who would never eat whale or dolphin meat, but don't need or want people outside the culture telling them what to do. She also spoke to the right-wing nationalists and animal rights activists who have dominated the conversation around Japan's whaling industry. And she talked to the fishermen of Taiji, people who, until the cove's success, didn't fully understand how globally reviled the 400-year-old cultural practice really was, and had no idea how to respond. What she ended up with is A Whale of a Tale, the film we're looking at today. Just a note, though, some of the upcoming clips contain strong language. Uh, So, Megumi, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I always like to ask directors about the titles of their films. Mm -hmm. You chose to call yours A Whale of a Tale. Why did you choose that title? First of all, I wanted to have uh, a whale in the title. And then tale pops up in my mind. The tale, you know, uh, sounds like a story tale and also a whale tale tale. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to have two words in the title. So this is the best I could come up with. Well, it's, it's a, I guess, a response to another uh, uh, documentary called The Cove. Mm-hmm. And um, 
I mean, I guess my, my first question is what what was it like to watch that documentary for the first time? It was um, it was shocking in many ways. And first of all, it was a very powerful storytelling, very well done film. So I was taken away. I mean, I just I, I became speechless for a while after I finished watching it in 2009 in New York. But, you know, after I sort of calmed down, I was like, wait a minute. But this film is just, you know, there's so many uh, misleading informations there. It's so one sided and full of prejudice towards, you know, Japanese fishermen and culture. And so I just felt very uncomfortable with that. And then more surprisingly, response to the movie, we didn't hear any um, critical voice from Japan at all. That was just as shocking. Like, do you remember, do you know what the reception was like in Japan? Was it screened there? Yes, it was screened there, but there was a tremendous boycott, like, you know, like right-wing nationalist organized movement to stop screening. And a lot of people, you know, were very, very um, upset about that film. And even though they don't really care about whaling or they're, you know, a lot of them against even whaling or practice of uh, uh, dolphin hunting, but they just felt that it's... Um, you know, it's a sort of um, insult towards Japanese culture, and they felt that they didn't want to be told what to do about it. So you, you ultimately decided to do your own film, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm wondering why you decided to respond with, a, with another documentary. Well, um, I know it's unusual to respond to a documentary film by documentary film. I think, uh, I don't know, I've never heard about it, but... Uh, this is just ha- this just happens to be my means, you know. I'm a documentary filmmaker, and um, as a Japanese, I live in the states, United States, for thirty years, and this issue of whaling has been always a sort of, um, you know, something what I really thinking about. Um, it really stuck in my um, in my mind for a long time, because in the states, you know. Many issues, whether it's gun control or abortion or about President Trump, we always hear both sides of the story. But when it comes to whaling, we only hear one side. And I always wonder why, you know, mm-hmm. why we only hear the negative voice, you know, um, towards these issues. So I realized that, you know, one of the reasons is uh, it's a lack of information. There's there's just not enough information about it. So, you know, there's no way for people to think or have a dialogue about that. My original purpose was to provide the information, but I did not want to make a movie that is supportive of dolphin or whale hunting. That was not, you know, the purpose of this film. So just to avoid any confusion, when we talk about whaling, we're referring to the hunt for both whales and dolphins. We asked Megumi what she thought of the whaling industry when she was growing up. You know, I grew up eating, uh, you know, whale meat uh, that was served for school lunch. And that was like a regular <laughs> school menu. How does it taste? Believe it or not. Well, it's, um, I should say it's like a fishy, fishy beef steak kind of thing. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, red meat with a fishy flavor. Okay. And some people really like it. I mean, that was definitely not my favorite food. Um, but I think, you know, some people really love that taste. 
And especially like older generations, you know, immediately after World War II, there's a tremendous shortage of the food. They grew up eating, you know, old well meat. And so they have some, some, some kind of nostalgia towards the meat and flavor. Not my generation, but, you know, older generations. Yeah, well, watching your film, I realized the, the you put the some interesting historical context. It was actually encouraged uh, by the Americans uh, for Japanese to continue whaling yes, after the Second exactly. World War. Exactly, that was a General MacArthur who encouraged Japan to send out all these like you know ships towards the Southern Oceans to you know hunt whales for meat to feed mm-hmm. Japanese people. Japan's whaling fleet, by permission of General MacArthur's administration, is on the move again in the Antarctic. The whale hunt will help alleviate Japan's food shortage and ultimately save over $20 million for American taxpayers. Not exactly porterhouse steak, but mighty welcome to a hungry nation. Yeah, let's talk a bit about the the town itself. Um, Tell us a little bit about it, like... uh, if you were describing it to someone for the first time, what would you say? It's a gorgeous, gorgeous little um, heavenly place. But it's interesting how the town is portrayed in such a you know, gray, dark, you know, color in the movie of the Cove. And I think they say that it's a little town with a big secret. And there's <laughs> nothing secret about the town. And what whatever they're practicing is just totally legal there. It was just, you know, it's just unfortunate. But, you know, it's such a beautiful town. And how important is whaling to Taiji? Whaling means to them is an identity and a pride because they practice it for 400 years. And it's not just about food or it's not just about um, economy or job. I think whaling has united the community, you know, for such a long time. And, you know, even though they don't really depend on that practice, you know, economically anymore, but they have all kinds of like festivals, singing, dancing, spiritual prayers, and that is really a part of their life. It's it's certainly a very important part of their community. Yeah, it's interesting. All these, uh, I guess, uh, spinoff industries have, have developed out of whaling. I, so, th- what do they do with the dolphins exactly? They capture them and they uh, kill them and they eat them, or what else do they do with them? Um, that's all. They, you know. They hunt dolphins and, you know, for food. And also some species of dolphins, because they have a demand, there is a demand for it. And I think in, you know, the countries like from China, Russia, uh, Middle East, and that's, you know, where they send out to those uh, animals. But they, you know, they don't get paid that much at all. And there's another false information that they get paid like hundreds of thousands of dollars per dolphin. But that's like, I think that's a retail price per se, I guess. Hmm. But fishermen never gets paid that much of money at all. Well, you interview a few of the fishermen uh, that were, I guess, both in the cove and I guess a few other fishermen as well. Right. Um, And they've been in this business for generations. What have their lives looked like since the cove came out? 
Um, I think they were living under tremendous stress because they've been, they have been doing whatever their father, grandfather, great grandfather's been doing, you know, without any questions. But all of a sudden, they are, you know, just dragged under global spotlight and pointed fingers, you know, as villains. But I think they gradually started understanding, you know, how they, how the world viewed them. But on the other hand, uh, they're also put in a position almost like a forefront of like Japan's whaling practice. So they're sort of under pressure in turn, like I think domestically that, you know, they really have to keep going. You know, they, they don't want to make it look like Japan is a loser, you know, losing this battle over whaling, I guess. Where does that pressure come from exactly? I think um, just, you know, public opinions, media, government, overall, I think Japanese sentiment, that's kind of created there too. Let's say whaling doesn't um, pay off anymore, so they want to stop. But I think they're going to have a hard time just quitting it, you know, because of this pressure. So how did you get them to trust you? Well, it took a lot of drinking. <laughs> <laughs> that often builds a lot of trust. <laughs> yeah, totally. And just, you know, talking to them so many, just communicating. And um, I don't think they totally trusted me per se, because they just don't like outsiders, you know, whether it's Japanese or foreigners. I think unless you live there for a long, long time and totally... Um, you know, integrated in the community, but still, you know, outsiders, outsiders. But I think they're very grateful at the end that um, I gave them a voice, which they didn't have at all in this controversy. You also spoke to uh, anti-whaling activists, uh, notably the Sea Shepherd uh, Mm -hmm. activists. Just tell us a little bit about who they were. Um, Scott and Elora, they just, you know, they started coming to um, town of Taiji in 2010 and I think the first season in 2010 that's the year when Academy um, that's the year the Cove won the Academy Award so they lived in the next door town I think they stayed in a hotel and they um, they would come first thing in the morning at the Cove and they observed um, they um, took photographs and videos and they tweeted and spread the word and they're very aggressive with the with the fishermen. I mean, they use some pretty foul language that I won't repeat. Why are you putting up your hand? Don't you want to be on camera? You're very ashamed of what you do, aren't you? We have. Hey, I'll give you some more. You need some. Boy, boy. I bet you're getting pretty mad, aren't you? You little dumbass shit. What did you think of that? Like sitting when you're filming them. What, what did what did you think of that? Watching that. Certainly, I don't agree the way they. Um, you know, they acted in that manner. I mean, that, but that happens in sort of like later in the year. And they were not as aggressive at the beginning. I think we were friendly to each other. And they knew that I was interviewing a fisherman. I was, you know, filming the fisherman. Um, but they didn't seem to care as much as the fisherman, you know. So me talking to the Sea Shepherd, they really didn't like that at all. They didn't like you talking to them. No, not at all. Hmm. So, uh, but I, 
made very clear to both sides that um, I'm going to be talking to both of the sides, both of them. You know, I'm not going to be, you know, taking a side in this story. Right. That's what I told them, you know. Um, so, you know, they, they were not too happy about it, I guess. But, uh, yeah, they accepted it. I, I kind of wondered if um, they're just so used to these to these activists now that it's just like, oh, God, he, there's there's those, those Sea Shepherd guys again. Here mm-hmm. we go. Like, it's just kind of like just part of the tradition of, of catching these dolphins. They now have to deal with these activists. Right. Um, sea Shepherd is not the only one. You know, they're not the only activists who were there. But they sort of became a symbol of activists, like a foreign activist in Japan because of them. And that's a sort of unfortunate too. Somehow uh, this belief that activists are doing this to make money, it's their one way of doing the business. It's not business at all. You know, there's no understanding. There's not good understanding about activism in Japan. So that was, you know, very wrong on Japanese side as well. So... You know, towards the end, I really felt that this is really not who's right or wrong. You know, it's really about um, miscommunications. Why can't we understand each other despite the differences? You know, you might not like what they do or how they think, but we really have to coexist, right? (laughs) So Mm -hmm. that became the really core message of the uh, story. It's not about, you know, to make a judgment about the dolphin or whale hunting. Yeah, I want to pick up on that theme of miscommunication, but I, at first I want to just uh, uh, center in on one character who's American, and his name is Jay Alabaster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's a journalist that's been living in Japan, right. uh, like 18 years or something like that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what? Tell us a little bit about him. Yes, I didn't know he was there until like later in the uh, filming, which is, I think, late 2014. And somebody told me there is an American guy living in Taiji, kind of quietly. They never, he never came forward. He never been on media, but he was just really, he used to work for AP, but he quit his job and he was trying to write a book and about this issue. So, you know, I met him and then we talked and, you know, we share the um, thoughts about this, um, you know, what's going on in Taiji and about, about also overall the issue of whaling and dolphin hunting. We really, you know, um, we really sort of like, I don't know how to say it, but we, we really agreed with each other. We shared a lot of opinions and feelings towards it. So, um, and I, right there, I knew that I wanted to, I wanted him to be in the film. And um, he's sort of like like a reverse mirror image of me because he's American living in Japan for a long time and me as a Japanese living in the States for a long time. So um, I think we, we, we did share a lot of um, opinions about these issues. Taiji is kind of a, a, a microcosm of what's happening in Japan as a whole and that it's just not, for whatever reason, it's just not a very media-savvy country. You know, they're not good at putting their, their opinions and their, their stance out there. And that's super important in, in today's world. With this Twitter, Facebook, you know, you have to react quickly. They have the ability and the technology, that's not an issue. But for some reason, international facing, they haven't figured out how to present themselves. And so when they do something that's already controversial, like whaling or hunting dolphins, they have no support at all in the media. So they just get 
pummeled by these really savvy media groups, especially Sea Shepherd. These are the monsters of Taiji. We got a really interesting point about towns like Taiji that are are the ones that are actually endangered. Uh, what did he What did he mean by that? I think a little towns like that with a unique culture, unique traditions, but they're disappearing. They're struggling to sustain, especially like you know um, rural area in Japan, small towns. Um, you know, it's it's very difficult to to be to economically sustainable and also the population is aging and um, young people they all move out to live in the big cities so um, the small town like Taiji where people are so connected and you know it's so important and uh, preserve their long-standing culture but a lot of communities are struggling to you know to survive. And another thing is that because uh, a lot of Western media don't come here, but they sometimes still do stories about here, they turn to those organizations as their source of information. So Sea Shepherd gets quoted in a lot of articles, or Sea Shepherd pictures get used, you know, and Taiji itself isn't offering anything. And that's not Taiji's fault. This is a tiny town of 3,000 people. They're not required to have an international news bureau. But someone needs to realize that Taiji has become this symbol of a much, much greater conflict in the media. Well, picking up on that theme of, of uh, miscommunication, uh, there is, you do go to a conference mm-hmm. uh, where the anti-whaling activists and the leaders of the whaling industry, right. uh, they meet, I guess, for the first time mm-hmm. uh, to have, I guess, a, a debate. How right. did it go? Oh, that was, it was a first meeting and first and last, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and um yeah it just you know they just confirmed that um you know they would not be able to come to the understanding all this discussion just goes parallel you know i think they came to the agreement that they just disagree <laughs> agree to disagree agree to disagree yeah well as a filmmaker you know mm-hmm. you you're trying to make a film i guess that's that's uh that's balanced but it's not an easy thing, right? I mean, how do you communicate to people that this is just isn't a black and white issue? Well, no matter what I say verbally or no matter what I try to portray in the film, people just believe in what they want to believe in. And first of all, I don't come in with the attitude that, hey, I'm going to change the world or I'm going to change people's thinking. You know, people never, people hardly ever change their mind. So I think as a storyteller, it's wrong to come in with the attitude to change somebody's mind. But rather, I just wanted to show as is what's going on. I didn't want to impose my idea. I didn't want to, you know, impose my, you know, opinion, like what's wrong or right. Um, I just left. I wanted to leave it to the audience so they can decide whatever. And I think some people get really sort of unease and and uncomfortable about it because it's easier to be told what's right and wrong, right? Which people are are displeased by it and which people uh, are pleased by it? I think, um, well, people who already have a very strong, extreme idea towards the issue, let's say like the Sea Shepherd members or supporters. We had a screening in this little, in, in this town called Stanford, Connecticut, it's about an hour away from New York. And local congressman-elect, he was calling out to boycott 
screening this film without even seeing it. Screening your film? Yes. Wow. Without even, you know, watching it. And I thought that was a very scary thing. He's, um, he's a supporter of the Sea Shepherd, and he's been to Taiji, and he has his, you know, mindset. So no matter what, you know, he saw or heard, he will never change his mind. And he came to the screening. I invited him to come and let's have a dialogue, and he did. But still, he, you know, what he's saying on his Facebook is exactly the same thing as before. In Japan, too, you know, um, some extremists, like nationalists, who's really unhappy with the Sea Shepherd or, you know, the pressure that they receive. They don't like the film because I make, you know, like Sea Shepherd people like a human being. <laughs> they <laughs> expected me to portray them like villains, which I didn't. So they were not happy with that at all. So you can't please everyone. Like, are people just going to uh, continue to battle with each other over this issue, or do you think they'll ever you'll there'll ever be some type of resolution down the road? I I certainly hope that there's you know some kind of like um, if it's not resolution, at least some understanding, and that's the response that I received, you know, from this film. I'm screening this film in in the U.S. Um, in Europe and you know they say they don't like they still don't like the idea of hunting whales and dolphins but they also at the same time think that it's so wrong to go to the other side of the world and then tell them what to do when you know this issue is not really I mean their practice of hunting whales and dolphins is not really hurting environment or anything so you know why bother why they have to do that response from the the filmmakers behind the cove to your film i've seen um the filmmaker louise hoyas um posted a really really negative comment on his facebook oh. and i invited him to have a conversation with me uh on the screening uh he never responded to the invitation but he just posted the uh very negative uh comment Last summer, the co's director, Luis Sahoyos, posted a response on Facebook. Here's producer Chantel Berganza reading some of what he wrote. In spite of Ms. Sasaki's attempt to harken back to a period of time when one could make profitable business off of force-feeding toxic dolphin meat to Japanese schoolchildren, and when it was acceptable to repeatedly impale dolphins in a wildlife sanctuary, the fact remains. Taiji dolphin hunting is a business that ultimately poisons people and tortures sentient creatures. I didn't respond to it because uh, my film is a response and um, where his discussion is uh, taking place in a different dimension from where I'm trying to, you know, express myself or my idea. One last thing before we go. A couple of weeks after we recorded this episode with Megumi, on Christmas Day actually, Japan decided to leave the International Whaling Commission, 
or IWC, and return to commercial whaling. This is kind of a big deal. The IWC oversees whale conservation. It's the organization that banned commercial whaling in 1986. Some member countries used to get around this ban by hunting for scientific research purposes, but the IWC nixed that too, just last fall. So what was Japan's response? Just leave the commission. Needless to say, conservationists and foreign governments aren't too happy about it. And that's the podcast. You can catch A Whale of a Tale streaming now on iTunes. It's also going to be our last episode for a while, but we've got an award season surprise planned for you. So stay subscribed and look for that to drop in your feed in a few weeks. We would love it if you left us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find the show, and it's just great to hear what you think. Word of mouth is another way you can help support the show, so tell a friend they can binge listen to all 10 episodes right now on their favorite podcast app. If you want to recommend some docs to us for future episodes, write us at ondocs at tvo.org. You can also follow me on Twitter at ColinEllis81. I have a lot of people to thank for helping me do this podcast, and that starts with my team of intrepid producers Chantel Braganza and Matthew O'Mara. You guys busted your butts off to make me sound this good, so thank you both very much. Thanks to our production support coordinators, Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Howell. A huge thanks to our podcast manager, Hannah Sung, not only for letting me host this show, but for all her encouragement and hard work in getting on docs off the ground. We couldn't have done this podcast without all the help we received from the people behind the scenes here at TVO who helped put this series together. From our media services people to our marketing team, thank you all very much. Last but not least, thanks to all the people who supported the podcast from the start and were willing to give me a chance. I never thought I'd get to host a podcast before, and now I'm doing it thanks to... Leanne Kotler, Stacey Dunseith, Kathy Vay, John Ferry, Lisa DeWild, Sue Ann Kelman, Caitlin Plummer, Jane Jankovic, Linda Fong, Christine Lee, Naomi Boxer, Norm Wilner, Barry Hertz, Steve Pakin, Nam Kiwanuka, Jan Jaganathan, The Second City, and many others who helped along the way. I could not have done this without you, so thank you. We will definitely see you at the next screening.